In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Welcome to this edition of Money Tales. Imagine you're 21 years old, your dad is diagnosed with cancer, He dies six weeks later, and you find yourself inheriting a life-changing amount of money. You're also in charge of managing investments and a foundation, and you've never had any training or experience in these areas. This is Cami, and in this episode, Sandy and I talk with Kristen Heaney, whose life took this very sharp turn when she was in college. Kristen is a wealth legacy coach and consultant at Legacy Capitals. In our conversation, she shares many life experiences with us, including the roller coaster of emotions she felt along the way. Kristen tells stories about how she navigated the concerns and perceptions of being an inheritor. We think you'll appreciate from the discussion how Kristen's values-focused, purposeful approach to life has allowed her to successfully manage her family's resources and use them to support their community. Be sure to stick around after the interview for our financial insight about private foundations, where we'll provide an overview of what they are and how they're organized. Let's get this episode started. Kristen Heaney, welcome to Money Tales. We're so glad you're here with us. Thank you. To get the conversation started, we would like you to just give us a brief description of your life, maybe concentrating on one or two or even three pivotal moments that have really shaped who you are and where you're at today in your life. So I was raised in the metro Detroit area, the suburbs, and my father had an automotive supply business like steel processing and coils. And if you know Detroit, the Detroit suburbs at all, you know that there's the east side and the west side suburbs. And we were east siders. And as east siders, I would say it's somewhat more blue collar. Obviously, my dad's business was that way. And I would say the greater degree of wealth is on the west side, with exception of Gross Point, which you may have heard of. That's on the east side. But because we were east siders and because my parents were kind of raising us with some of the same middle class values and even lower class values, honestly, they both kind of grew up in poverty. I did not realize the degree to which my dad was becoming or had become successful in his business. But while I was still in college, I was a senior in college, my dad was diagnosed with cancer and he died very quickly. It was like six weeks from diagnosis to death. And so as a psych major and as a senior in college, I learned like in a deathbed conversation with him that I would be inheriting significant financial assets. I knew he had a business, but I didn't realize he had also been able to invest a lot of money and build that success on the side as well. And in addition, I learned that I would be taking over directorship upon his death of our family foundation. So this was very overwhelming because I literally didn't know a stock from a bond. I was a psych major, always kind of oriented that way. And I 
very quickly, I mean, I didn't have that experience of like, oh my gosh, I won the lottery, thinking all about the blessings associated with this. I immediately kind of worried about a lot of the burdens, really this making me very vulnerable, this putting me in a place of maybe the most important things to me being put at risk, relationships and my sense of self-agency and purpose. So those were some of my first thoughts rather than like, woohoo, look at me, I have a great thing coming to me. I was very concerned and took the idea of like preparing myself and holding on to the values that I had been raised with very seriously, but I was 21 at the same time. So I kind of proceeded with the plan and the path of life that I was already on and got a master's in social work. And in my early career, I actually worked in a large church in Metro Detroit as their care director. And so it was my dream job because they said, go build whatever programming the community needs. And the great part of it was it was nonprofit work. So it wasn't very well paying, but I was able to take that job because I had the additional income from the inheritance. So it was nice to be able to do that and kind of live out purpose from that point. But along the way, I've really read all of the books in the field that I am in now as a coaching consultant to wealthy families. I took a pivot there. I was reading all of the books from the heroes of this field just to orient myself and to keep myself on the straight and narrow and making the choices that would honor my dad's legacy and would kind of honor my values. So about five years ago now, six years ago, I guess it is, I made the choice to, as a coach, direct my services towards working with financially successful families because I realized there's not a lot of opportunity for them to work through some of these challenges that are kind of intangible. They're wonderful financial services people, but I really needed someone to kind of talk through the non-financial capital impact of what I was dealing with. And now I have a husband and two teenage boys and my husband and I are kind of working to guide them in a place of being more prepared than I was and also having some of those same legacy values as well. That's a great introduction. I really appreciate it. We really appreciate it. We'll get to some of the later stuff, but can we go back to being raised in this middle-class values? I think you said lower-class values. How was money handled in your home? It's funny, looking back now, in hindsight, I can see how some of the script changed as my dad in particular was kind of making sense of the fact and really realizing that he was becoming successful. Because when I was like in elementary school, my mom and I occasionally would use layaway to buy school clothes. We'd be at JCPenney in the layaway department. Is that even a thing now? I don't know if layaway is still a thing. Credit card debt. Yeah, (laughs) that's the new layaway, right? So I would say that there were values I was being taught to be careful about spending. But then as I got older, even in elementary school, I was in Metro Detroit, there's a network of Lutheran private schools. So I was going to a private school. It's not like a prep school now, but it was still something you had to pay money for. And then I remember as I got into later middle school, my dad bought a Cadillac. And I remember feeling a little bit embarrassed that he was dropping me off at school in a Cadillac. And I don't know where that was coming from, but I even verbalized that to him and he kind of thought it was funny. But I started to feel like I was experiencing that. This feels a little off script from how typically we've done things. Looking back, I think that I still have some values inside of me that were transferred to me from my family about don't have something that you can't really take care of yourself, like a bigger house than you can take care of yourself or whatever. And so I think that there are a lot of those middle class values that are still very much ingrained in me. And it was funny to see as my dad 
had success, even though I wasn't aware that that was happening, I could see some of the choices changing, even about where we lived and things like that. But as a kid, you're noticing, but not really putting all the pieces together, what that means. So Kristen, at that time, what were you learning about money and who were you learning it from? It sounds like there wasn't a lot of conversation in the family. Yeah, I would say it was kind of like picking up on clues. And part of it too is like who you're living alongside of because everything is relative. And so we as Eastiders, it was rare that we were spending time with people who had tons of wealth, very wealthy people. And when we were, I think my parents would have conversation with me about not like judging, but just noticing this is how they spend money. That's not necessarily how we spend money. Like I remember one time we went to a family on the West side. I feel like I'm making too much of this about the West side, East side, but it was a West siders family's house. So we went to visit a family and my parents went out with the parents of this family. And so we had a babysitter and the babysitter, I remember ordering a hamburger for the dog when we got takeout in addition to the fact that their house was much more extravagant than our house. And so I remember on the way home, we did have a conversation where, again, my parents weren't judging the choices, but I think it was probably important for them to highlight they just spend money differently than we do. This is not necessarily the way that we choose to spend our money. And so I think that I internalized some of that. There weren't a lot of rules or conversation about how money was spent. I didn't have to get a job in high school. There were things that I could say looking back In terms of wealth values, I don't know how overt it was, but there were subtle ways that my parents did a great job of, I think, instilling really important wealth values that supported me through that time when it definitely seemed like a financial windfall after my dad's death. And so you go off to college, and at the beginning, it sounds like you were having a typical college experience. Was money playing a role in any of the decisions you were making at that point before your father fell ill? The setup that we had at that point was, I guess, privileged from the standpoint that my expenses went to my dad's. I had a credit card that my dad's secretary would pay for, but I never went off script. I never bought expensive things. In fact, it was just the opposite. I remember one time I went to New York City because I had a college boyfriend who lived near New York City. And so I went there and my dad said, you're going to New York City. Like you're a girl, you got to spend a little money buy a few things when you're there. And again, that was for me off script because that's kind of not how I was raised. So it's nice that he said that, but I didn't do it. So I never felt like a regulation about money. I never like had a budget, but I always was respectful, kind of understanding this is not money that I made. And I think that that value of respect that I was brought up with translated into the way that I approached spending money. I did work in college between summers and I would use that as well. But when there was an overage for, I need to go to Walmart to buy shampoo or whatever. There was never any question about anything that I needed. And I didn't really push very hard for anything that I wanted. In fact, I remember shopping like at the thrift store and kind of thinking it was fun. Getting a good deal was fun when you're in college. It's part of the college experience, I think, to be frugal. And I really didn't realize that he was in the financial position that he was in. And I certainly didn't realize that I would be in that place at the end of college. I want to know what was the first big purchase for you and when was it that you felt like you're a Cadillac in quotes? I don't know if I could really equate it to a Cadillac because it was on a much smaller scale, but because I was accustomed to being frugal, it felt like a big sort of frivolous spend to me, but I didn't even remember this until I was in a cab in, it was last year in Chicago. 
And this whole memory came flooding back to me because I think it was like a year after my dad died, my mom and I went to a foundation conference in Chicago because we had so much to learn. So she came on the board too, and it's kind of helping me. So after the conference, it was like on Miracle Mile in Chicago. And so after the conference was over, one evening we went shopping. And I remember I saw this coat, like a winter coat. And it looked just like this obnoxious coat that my dad would wear that was like sheepskin that we all would make fun of. But it was so meaningful to me and symbolic because I looked at this coat and I was like, it reminds me so much of him. In this moment, I put it on and I fell in love with it. It was a much trendier version than what he had. It was much cuter (laughs) than what he had. But it meant something symbolic in a way that I didn't even realize then that I would buy this coat, which was like over $1,000. I don't know, it was like $1,500, $1,600, which I would never spend that much money on a coat. But then it was on sale. So I remember it came to $800. And that was like, I had never spent any kind of money on like an apparel purchase like that. But it was like this moment where I'm putting his role on managing this foundation And it didn't mean that to me then, but looking back in hindsight, just last year when I'm in this cab in Chicago, driving past there going like, wow, this was a really pivotal moment. And and I'm really glad I made the purchase because it ended up being kind of a symbol for me of both. You can spend money on things thoughtfully. And in that moment, it really became a symbol that was meaningful as well. Fantastic. Do you still own the coat today? I don't know. My husband is probably pleased that I don't. About five years ago, we moved from Michigan to Florida, and I no longer needed it. And it wasn't his favorite coat anyway, so he was glad to see it go. And was it okay for you to move away from it? Yeah, I was ready to let go of the meeting that it carried for me. I think I took it as it was transferred onto that item, and kind of I sort of carry it with me now. That's a beautiful story. So Kristen, take us back to college. I mean, this is huge. Your father is sick. Presumably, you're very worried about him, and then you get this bomb dropped on you about family, business, wealth, foundation. What did that feel like in the moment? And how was your relationship with your mom and other family members as all of this was happening? It was so overwhelming that I almost feel like I don't have as much detail about that time as I would like to. I think I lost a lot of time at my now husband's apartment, who was my boyfriend then. I would go to his apartment and he had like three jobs. And so he wasn't there a lot, but he had a fish tank. And I remember hours spent in front of the fish tank that I lost, I think just kind of planning and preparing and processing and grieving everything that I was going through because I felt incredibly isolated through this time because my brother, I didn't mention my brother, took over the family business. And so I think he was like 28 29 at the time. And so that was a lot for him to manage. So he wasn't necessarily able to be a resource to me through any of this because he himself was overwhelmed. My mom and my dad at the time of my dad's death were divorced. And so my mom knew less than I did about any of this, even through their marriage, I would say. And so she was not a resource to me either. So, I mean, it was this, I would say this overwhelming and scary, but also pivotal moment where you kind of look above you and realize there's no one in the generation above me or around me really who can tell me what to do here. So I'm going to have to figure it out on my own. And I guess I had enough gumption in that moment to say, I don't want to fail. I almost felt like people expected me to fail or like that would be the cliche that here comes the young inheritor and she's going to go screw this up and fall off the rails. And I guess I'm wired in a way that made me specifically not want to do that. So It gave me the motivation I needed to be able to, even before Google, it's not like you could go to Google and 
ask the difference between a stock and a bond. So I had to try to figure out how I was going to manage both the financial capital learning curve and learning some of the financial literacy that I needed to make competent decisions and to feel less vulnerable than I did in that moment, but also the broader, more human capital values areas that I needed to grapple with in order to be successful in myself moving forward. You mentioned going to books for your help and your guidance, and your education. Did you go to anybody else? Your brother's busy. This is a new thing for your mom. Who else did you look to for assistance? I realized at some point during my senior year that it would probably be helpful for me if I had a professional that I felt like was in just my corner. And that's not necessarily because there was anything that my brother was doing that I felt taken advantage of. Like we went through that process really amicably and in a loving way together. But it felt important for me when I couldn't understand the documents that I'm reading that I have someone who I can look to and say, can you help me even understand what this means from my perspective? And so again, before Google, I had to call Detroit to get someone in Detroit to send me a phone book so that I could try to find an attorney (laughs) in that area. It was a very overwhelming process. But thank you, God, for directing me to an attorney that I ended up hiring and working with for many years, who was a perfect fit because he was a professor at Wayne State University. So he had a way, he was a tax attorney too. So like his background was perfect for the estate complexities that we had to move through. But he also had a lot of patience as a professor for someone who every five minutes was saying, can you explain that to me? I don't know what that means. And thank God for that. So he definitely helped to kind of act as a translator. He did a great job too of not sort of overstepping. I think that there can be a tendency for an advisor to be like, this girl doesn't know what she's doing at all. Like, let me tell her what choices she needs to make. He kind of translated for me and said, these are your options. This is what this paper says. What do you think is the best choice? Yeah, he definitely was very integral in helping me to make good decisions. I mean, at that point, you don't know what you don't know, and you don't know what paths are possible for you. And so he was helpful just to kind of shine a light on some of the things I should be learning and resourcing myself on to get through that time. So thank God for him, Albert Spalding. And Kristen, during that time period, did you have any feelings toward your father for not having shared this information with you previously? Or tell us how that was. I guess it didn't surprise me. And it didn't occur to me to question his approach to that. And even now, I guess I would say the same thing. I approach it very differently, my husband and I, in the preparation that we strategically think about planning for the future roles and responsibilities our kids will have. We think about it differently, but it's hard to judge now his approach to it because at least at this point, I'm still on the rails. So you can say... I was completely unprepared and he might've been more overt in explaining why, like he would make little quips and be like, you really should get into the business school and take a business class. But I was like, whatever, he just wants me to be who he is. Like I'm my own person. You're not the most open at that phase of life to what what direction your parents are giving you. Not that there's a class in school for like inheriting significant family assets 101 anyway, but it would have been helpful to at least know a little bit about the stock market at that point. So I guess I don't, him for that. And I recognize that he was grappling with making sense of his own wealth journey, having gone from his story is pretty remarkable, kind of an American dream story. He grew up in rural Appalachia and left after high school, no college degree, moved to the metro Detroit area and kind of worked his way from the bottom up 
in the manufacturing industry, the automotive supply industry, and ended up for a variety of reasons owning his own business. So the success that he had made and to move from literally growing up in pretty impoverished conditions to realizing that you've had this great financial success and trying to parent kids through it. I recognize what an overwhelming, hard to make sense of kind of experience for him that was. And I know now with a 17-year-old son, I hope that my time of influence is not coming close to done. As a parent, you don't think, wow, I only have 21 years to instill this in my kids, but I was 21 when he died. And you think you have a lot more time to instill values and to teach them things. So if he had a plan, it certainly got cut short. How have you found this new place? You touched on it, Kristen, but can you tell us how this impacted your relationships with your friends, with your boyfriend, who's now your husband? How did this impact? I guess my biggest concern is that this would color people's perspective of me in a way that was, I don't want to say unfair, but like inaccurate. I didn't want people to see this money that I'd inherited as me because one of the things that I try to avoid most is really being misunderstood. And a lot of the values that I had and held deeply, I worried not that they would be eroded by this, but there would be the potential for me not to be able to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish because of it. And specifically in my relationship with my boyfriend, you do feel vulnerable. And I was so, I don't know if sidelined is the word, but like overwhelmed by this. that it's almost like I couldn't not be transparent about what was going on. I mean, I didn't give him figures, but he obviously knew that this was enough money to send my head spinning a little bit. So that makes you feel very vulnerable. I think we were far enough along in our relationship though, where I was able to be honest. And then it kind of gave me the opportunity to see him reacting to this as well. In the ways that I watched him react to it were in all of the right ways that he was ready to come right alongside of me and have these conversations about how do you keep this from kind of ruining who you are and how do you still hold strong to your values? And then the conversation over time began, how can we still promote our values through this? So Obviously, he passed all of the tests associated with that. We've grown together in working through all of that. But I mean, it impacted my relationship with my mom as well, because that, I think, is a challenging thing to watch from a man that you've divorced to watch now your daughter receives this money. Divorce is always a hard situation, and they went through it very well, and it kind of remained friends through the process. But I know that that was a challenging thing for her to watch happen too. So. Those are the things you care about most. It can remain a challenge in friendship, depending on how you navigate your transparency and the choices that you make. I always have a lens in friendship now that when there's someone who seems to have kind of more of a scarcity mentality, a focus on what they don't have, I see that as a red flag that maybe we won't be a great fit together as friends. Because if you find out that I'm an inheritor, is that going to get in the way of our ability to accept and value one another. Was that based on actual experiences with people who had that mindset? Even with clients, I call those moments where you realize that the notion of wealth and me having more resources is getting in the way of our ability to connect. I call them zingers. So I have had moments throughout the years where people that I work with or acquaintances will make a comment like, it must be nice for you type of comment. And it always, I think, hurts to some degree because you realize this person is seeing the resources more than they're seeing me and my heart or our heart, Ryan and I. 
So I think that hurts, but I've learned over time that that says more about them than it does about me, right? And I have to sleep at night with the choices that we're making and wanting to make sure that those align with our values. And if people always may choose to see and judge whatever choices that you're making, that's their choice to do that. But that just teaches me that there may be a hindrance in our ability to connect effectively with one another. That doesn't mean I'm going to cut that person off, but it gives me good information to know that this might be an obstacle for us in connecting. Kristen, in the conversation thus far, you've put a lot of focus on values and family values. And it'd be great if you would just share with us more about how you and Ryan came up with your values. And we'd be curious to know if those values have shifted at all over time as life events have continued to unfold for each of you. It's hard to know and pinpoint where you acquire or what influence it is that really creates the foundation for a certain set of values for you. So I think for me in particular, as a Christian, I have important values around understanding that, number one, I'm not the center of the world. It's not about me. So I think that that really helped the wealth from becoming the center of who I am. Like I'm important because I have all this money or whatever. That for me, I never have seen myself as the center of the world because of my Christian worldview. And in addition to that, I've also never seen the purpose of my life to be my own accomplishments or what stuff I can acquire. The purpose of my life has always, and this definitely was taught to me in particular by my mom and my dad to some degree as well. And I think that my husband's upbringing was aligned with this as well, that the purpose of your life is really about taking your gifts and talents and bringing them out into the world for the benefit of other people. And so there's nothing about that worldview that lends itself to going to sit on your laurels and just enjoy the luxuries of life. That when there's a strong belief that I'm not put here just to take up space and enjoy life, I'm put here to help others make opportunity, to help develop others, to use my gifts and talents as a benefit to the world. And so if and when the resources align with that mission, that's great. And I think that that happens very effectively in the context of our foundation. And certainly, if you think of over time, when you have kids, and certainly as they grow into teenagers, one of the things that they do is really help to have, I don't know, like an accountability or like a check to really make you think about those values and to reinforce and to be able to succinctly state to them why you're doing the things that you're doing, why you're making the choices that you're making, because they make you justify it certainly if you have kids who are oriented that way. So I think that over time, the values that we have have really just reinforced themselves, the importance of them, because now we see that it has an even greater impact as we're trying to teach them to the next generation. Speaking of that next generation, would you share with us, how are you having conversations about money with them that maybe you didn't have with your folks or align with what happened in your youth? My husband and I really, maybe we even overdo it, to be honest with you, but we really try to be hawks for the everyday situations that come up in life that we can kind of extract the wealth supporting values out of. And I would say even broader than that, thinking not just about financial capital, but human capital and all those values pieces as well. Whether it's them coming to us saying, so-and-so's family bought this, or this kid always seems to have the new eye, whatever not just to kind of lecture them, but to just open a conversation about, well, what do you think about that? So that they can start thinking for themselves and 
I mean, we try to hold off as much as we can to just let them grapple a little bit. But then whenever it's appropriate to take the opportunity to kind of share like, oh, what we've been trying to do is this in our family. What do you think about that? So that they can try to explore and find themselves within that. But then sort of more technically speaking, we've had in our meetings with our advisors, with our advisor team, we've sort of always had them with us. When they were little, our team would bring like coloring pages for them to do while we were sitting together. And then once they got old enough to kind of take in and be aware of what we were talking about, they would sit for a portion of it, just the investments overview and asset allocation. They would sit through that part and then we would send them out for the money time. And even now they do that because they're starting to make money now. They have very small IRA accounts and each of them in their own name. And so they're able to sit through the investments overview and the asset allocation conversation. And then they're also able to sit through the performance conversation about how their individual accounts have been performing over the year and what's gone on and be able to see and learn that like, wow, invested assets primarily just increase exponentially. Like this is amazing. And when it's been a tougher year, why that was the case and probably 50% of it goes over their head, but is 50% more than what I knew, certainly at their age. So this will give them the opportunity to at least be a little further down the road than I was. And even with the foundation too, like we just did a meeting with a new mental health organization. I've been increasingly concerned about the way COVID is increasing challenges associated with mental health. And so we just interviewed a new organization. Of course, it was virtual, so we weren't able to be on site, but we had the kids with us so that they're, again, 50% of it is going over their head, but they're at least witness to what questions are we asking? How are we handling the conversation? What is the tone? So that they'll be more ready than I was for those roles and responsibilities. Kristen, have there been any questions that the kids have asked or any situations that have come up that sort of surprised you or stumped you or caused you and Ryan to go, oh no, what do we say? I feel like every day. (laughs) I have humility in my parenting and I really just say, God help me answer this question every day. But one that stands out in my mind is it's been several years now, but our youngest came to us and as part of the local private school in our small town, I think that there's an expectation within the kids who are in the public school that if you go to this private school, you must be super rich. And so on his baseball team, there was a boy who had said to him, oh, you go to this school, you must be rich. And so our son was asking us, like, how do I respond to him about that? And so it's always this moment where you're like, oh, like, what is the right way to approach this? And actually, it was my husband who was zinged on this one, not me. And he handled it very well, because I think the right response to that is really, you don't know why they're asking you that really, or what's underneath of their own questioning and why they're coming to you about this. And so he just started asking some questions about like, well, what do you think about that? And I think at the age that he was at, he's very logical. So he's like, it's not the case that everyone that goes to this school is rich, actually. There's kids who scholarship. He's like trying to myth bust this belief that this is the case. So for him, it wasn't even really like, are we in the rich bucket or not? He was like crying foul on the whole framework underneath the question. But to help them make sense of that, that's not really a question that you have to overtly answer. That's an opportunity to teach them about there are always going to be people who have more resources than you and fewer resources than you. And everyone approaches the handling of those resources differently. Let's talk about how our family approaches it. And also like to give a kid just a script to handle some of those moments, which we kind of said a lot of times for that, answering a question with a question is more helpful too. 
oh, what makes you think that everyone who goes to this school is rich? Because then it opens up dialogue rather than just shutting it down with an answer. Awesome. Can we go back in time and talk about the foundation for a little bit? Because not only are you told that you're an inheritor, but there's a foundation and it needs to be run. When you were given the keys to the foundation, what'd you do? How'd you approach it? What was already in place and how did you move it forward? It'd be great to hear about that. So I think the advisors told us, by us, I say my mom and I, but don't think that my mom knew any more than I did. So (laughs) she came on board the foundation with me too. We knew that we had to give 5% away and it certainly made sense to just continue supporting the organizations that my dad had been supporting up to that point. So there's a couple of local organizations. I knew that he was very focused on kind of like that grassroots trying to help the organizations that are in your backyard so that you can build relationships with the team, with the leadership there and have a good sense of what they're doing and even be involved in that. And up to that point, I had really only been a part of like, there's a motorcycle ride that my dad had started at the one domestic violence organization. And so we knew that it made sense to keep kind of supporting those sort of legacy organizations. But then I also wanted to have some ownership of the process and to learn more about how to maximize this opportunity. I mean, in a way, not even in a way, like absolutely, I see the inheritance of the foundation as a much bigger blessing and opportunity than the wealth itself, because it's like that benefits us and future generations and gives us opportunity. And that's great. But the opportunity to bless other people who are struggling to find opportunity and have obstacles in their way to find it is a much bigger blessing. So we came into that with a lot of humility and a lot to learn, but those early conferences really helped where literally, I mean, notebooks. And I look back because we still have all of that. It really exposes how little that we knew that I was writing down like <laughs> about process. For instance, I learned like you can ask for people to make an organization to make a proposal for your grant. I was like, that makes a lot of, like we had no process. <laughs> we had no timeline. So we were really starting at square one. But I think as it often does across generations, the processes that were built during that time improved the approach of the foundation and the things that I learned during that time really helped it to have an even stronger approach and stronger impact than it did then. And Kristen, was your brother involved in the foundation? He was not involved in the foundation. I don't know if my dad assumed that my brother would have his plate more than full with trying to manage the business as he was taking it over during that time. But since then, and really, I would say, I don't know how many years it was after my dad died, that he started his own foundation. So he has his own foundation that the Detroit area kind of with the same purpose and mission to support organizations in the local community as well. And he's done amazing things. So it's almost like I see my dad's legacy in both of those foundations. They have two different names, but they're definitely coming from the same corpus of both financial wealth, as well as the values and the heart that my dad had in starting it. That's very cool. So it sounds like there wasn't anything to sort of negotiate with any other family members then. No. And in a way, that's kind of how My brother and I did our best and kind of had the instinct to wherever there were things that were intertwined, you know, there's never just one business, there's always a lot of complexity. And so I kind of backed out and he bought me out of aspects of the business that I owned that it would really be more helpful for him to own. And so there was several years of kind of negotiating and we did a lot of that through our lawyers just to retain our sense of familyness and it really didn't get ugly. It was all wonderful. And we, I think both went into it with wanting the best for everyone no one trying to take advantage of another person. But 
there's always points where you have to say, hmm, we've got to make this decision here about this one asset, and it could go one person's way or another. And it's always, for us, it was better to have attorneys do that with us guiding their when to be a bulldog about things and when to come on, this is my family member. We got to back off. So as you think about the foundation today and looking forward, it sounds like you're looking at it as a multi-generational organization. And so you mentioned that you have invited your sons into listen to meetings. What sort of expectations do you have of your children related to the foundation specifically? And how have you communicated that to them? So right now, I think that if you ask them, they would tell you that they'll be future directors and have a role to play with distributing these assets. In fact, my 17-year-old already is officially on the board of directors as of this year. But I also am mindful that the decade of your 20s is a very busy time. You're launching your own career, possibly getting married and I mean, maybe even having kids. And so there's not a lot of extra space for things. I always want them to be involved in some way, but I also think it's important to be mindful of the expectations that you're placing on them and whether they are realistic given their life stage and really like a good fit for where they're at. I don't ever want them to feel burdened by this role. I want them to see it as a great and wonderful responsibility and a great thing that they get to be involved in, not so much work that it's a burden. So that's how we try to set it up in terms of it's try to reduce complexity whenever we can. But I've also had a bit of an urge across the last maybe even five or 10 years to like become more strategic or even narrow in our giving approach. I think that there's a big push in philanthropy right now to pick one problem and solve it rather than kind of spreading your money out across a lot of organizations. And I've been a little bit resistant in doing that too narrowly and in a narrow way because I want them to have their voice in that. So I don't want to develop something kind of on our own. And then it's very different from how they're wired or what they believe or what their perspectives are. So generally our foundation tries to support smaller local organizations. Now that's become both um, Florida where we're at and the Detroit area as well, but also what we say unsexy causes, like causes that are kind of hard to get people to rally around. So I think that that is really in a weird way, exciting to be involved in because it's really hard for these organizations to rally people into, for instance, mental health organization we were just talking to. It's really hard for them to get people excited about a screener. Like we need a screener. We need to hire a new screener at the front to have interviews. But like those are the causes that we really want to fund and get behind. But my kids might have a totally different perspective on what lights them up and what they get passionate about doing in 10 or 15 years. And if that's the case, I want to have the flexibility to be able to pivot in that way. And it sounds like the education you're providing them is sort of on the job, if you will, just being part of meetings, being part of conversations, allowing them to absorb what they're interested in at this point in their life. Is there any other education you're providing them? I would say not right now. I know what's there. I know the opportunities that are there when it's time for them. And maybe that will be mid-20s or something when they can go to the conference like I did and even there's a lot of great stuff online, webinars and stuff that they can be involved in. And so I'm cognizant, and I don't know if I'm getting it right, but I'm cognizant of wanting to not have them drink from a fire hose on all of this and not shoot over their head where I now communicate unintentionally, like, this is a lot. This is another job you're going to have to have. And I want it to be fun and like an opportunity for them, not something that feels overwhelming. That's great. I'd love to bring up something that can be a little sensitive, but we talked to clients about it. We 
talk to them about what happens to their financial resources at the end of their life. Is it okay if we talk about that? So this is not very comfortable at times. Great. Have you and Ryan thought much about this, talked much about when your life is over, what happens? We do. And I hear you when you say people can be uncomfortable talking about this, but I sort of don't relate. And I think my husband would say the same thing because unfortunately we've lost both of his parents as well. They kind of died young. My dad died at 40. His dad died at 50. His mom died at 60. So that's pretty young to experience the death of your parents. And I think that because of that, it's wired us in a way that we know it's important to have these conversations. And we often find ourselves like encouraging our friends to think about this and everything because of what we've been through. It just makes such a difference when you go through this to have a plan and to know what the generation before you wanted and hoped and dreamed for what your life would be like and what you would do with resources. So we've seen what a difference that can make. So we actually spend a lot of time even talking about that with our kids. It's not hopeful to share figures with them right now because we're hoping that it's many decades that we're still here and those figures will be very different. We talk rarely about numbers. We frequently though talk about, even recently we bought a new house. And so talking with our kids openly about those choices allows us to be able to overtly say, well, if we're spending too much of, we call it, we'll just say family wealth. If we're spending too much of this family wealth, it's really like taking it from our grandkids because we don't want to take more than our fair share of this because this is, as you increase in family members over time, your family is going to get larger, then there's less of the pie available for people. So we're trying to teach them and model for them that when we're making our financial choices, we're trying to really live off of the interest of this and not really dig into the principle of it because that's supposed to be there for the education and the health and the opportunity of both your kids, 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 and via the foundation, people in the community as well. So we have overt conversation about that, I would say. And I think it was an important value of my dad's that this many stay within his bloodline. That was part of the legacy that I think he cared about deeply because of having grown up in poverty, that he wanted his success to not just be his success, but to be the success of his future family members as well. So what I feel deeply and what we're trying to teach our kids is this is not yours. You're a steward of this and you can think carefully and strategically about how and when you can and should spend it and enjoy it and when that sort of falls in line with the vision and then thinking about where would be the line that you'd be crossing that would make you feel like that's more than my fair share and it's important that we retain this for future generations as well as the community and what benefit we can make there. That's great. How do you hope to be remembered? I really hope to be remembered for my ability to come alongside of people and whether this is with my kids, with my husband, with my clients in work, that I was able to come alongside of them and help them develop into the people that they were wired to be, were made to be. That I can help them be the best version of themselves, help them move into whatever opportunity lies in front of them. Sometimes that happens with the dollars through the foundation. Sometimes that happens with a coaching conversation with a client. Sometimes it happens when I'm outside playing sports or screwing around with the kids at the beach or whatever. I think to come alongside people and share financial resources or the resources inside of you. I think that's how I hope to be remembered. That is wonderful. Thank you. Kristen, what's one piece of money wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners that hasn't come up yet in this conversation? I share this with my clients a lot, especially 
my older clients who have a couple of generations beneath them. And I care about this so much that I actually have a children's book that should be coming out at the end of the year called The Super Special Altogether Ordinary Day. And it really focuses on the important human capital that we can invest in one another. And I think that there can be like a myth that we can fall into the trap of believing that in order to impart that legacy, it only happens in the context of big moments. Like when we're on vacation together, we're somewhere amazing together, that it has to be something really planned out and perfect. And really, I think that that's a myth. And I think that legacy is imparted. Legacy happens when we're just in very ordinary moments together. And so the book is about a grandmother and her grandson that take a walk in the woods and all of the beautiful conversation and moments that happen in that time, that that's the good stuff. Those are the legacy moments. And I think that the human capital that you're imparting, that you're passing down in generations during that time far exceeds whatever financial capital that you will pass on to your loved ones. I can't wait to read the book. (laughs) I will send you one. Thank you. Thank you very much. Given where you are right now in life, what gives you the most satisfaction? I would say what gives me most satisfaction is the ability to help people see what they can be and the opportunity to develop that in them. Also, I would say to create things. I would say that I have a bit of a creative side too. And to be able to create like a tool, for instance, that really helps client families unlock the values that are most important to them, to communicate that to one another, to dig into even their family history. I would say giving people the opportunity to have this space and have these conversations with one another, it often doesn't happen, doesn't come naturally. It doesn't always happen on its own. And so I get great satisfaction from giving people the opportunity to grapple with some of those ideas individually and together. And Kristen, you talk about money a lot in your life, but what is your next money conversation going to be? I guess I would put the lens on that personally. I feel like we all become experts on the things that we've already lived through and we're kind of learners and novices on the thing that's right around the corner. And so the thing that's right around the corner for me, boohoo, kind of sad as I have teenagers. So I don't know much about what it looks like to parent young adults. And so I think that's kind of an endeavor that I'm taking on. I get a preview to that because in my work, one of my favorite aspects and most meaningful aspects of my work is I run cohort groups for young adults, typically 20s and 30s, of financially successful families. So I kind of get a preview in what some of the challenges are of that time frame. And I feel like it gives me a sneak peek into how I can be a successful parent of young adults as well. So I don't know how to do that successfully. I don't know how to be a great parent of young adults, but I'm looking forward to learning the ways that I can bring money conversations that are going to be useful to help my kids develop into the best people they can be. That is fantastic. I bet you're going to do really well and we'll be excited to see what your next book is about that. (laughs) No pressure. Thanks. Kristen Heaney, thank you so much for talking with us today. This was such a great conversation. We learned so much. We really appreciate you sharing. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. I appreciate it. Thank you, Kristen. Hello, Money Tale listeners. It's Sandy here with this week's Personal Finance Insight. In our interview, Kristen Heaney talks about being put in charge of her family's private foundation. 
A private foundation is set up for charitable purposes by an individual or family, and it's called private because its contributions typically come from the founding donor and not from public sources. A private foundation is a separate legal entity that is not owned by the founding donor, though they or their family usually control the foundation. It's this control and additionally the flexibility around charitable distributions that make establishing a private foundation enticing for many people with significant long-term philanthropic goals. A private foundation is administered by its board of directors and the founding donor establishes the board. It's usual, but not a requirement, for the donor to name family members to the board. This is a great way to engage different generations of the family in the foundation's activity as time goes on. The board is responsible for many things, such as creating the foundation's philanthropic mission and revising that mission over time so that it remains current to the board's focus. The board also retains control over the assets contributed to the foundation and distributions from the foundation to charity. Private foundations have more flexibility around the types of grants they can make compared to most other charitable entities. For example, in addition to being able to make gifts to public charities here in the U.S., private foundations can fund a variety of activities, including making grants to charities based overseas, creating and funding their own charitable programs, funding monetary awards and prizes to individuals, and funding gifts directly to individuals for emergency or hardship relief. While anyone can set up a private foundation, they do require care and feeding. Some foundations are most appropriate when the donor has a lot of money to fund them with and when the donor intends for the foundation to be in place for a long time. Many foundations are in existence for decades. Establishing the foundation requires filing several legal documents and the foundation must file an annual income tax return, though the only tax the foundation pays is a nominal excise tax on any capital gains it realizes from investment activities. Additionally, the foundation is required to give at least 5% of its assets away each year and the foundation needs to keep books and records of its grant-making activities. Some foundations choose to outsource all these chores to professional advisors, while others choose to hire and retain their own staff within the foundation. Another thing to be aware of is that taxable income limitations for deductible contributions by the donor to private foundations are more stringent than those for gifts to public charities. For example, a donor's annual charitable deduction for cash gifts to a private foundation is limited to 30% of their adjusted gross income, whereas they can deduct gifts to public charities for up to 60% of their adjusted gross income. So that's double the amount. Some very philanthropic donors will make contributions to both their private foundation and to public charities in order to qualify for the maximum possible annual charitable deduction. Establishing and running a private foundation can be a rewarding way for an individual or family to deploy their charitable giving strategies over time. That said, foundations are one of a variety of different charitable giving vehicles available for people to use. At Experient, we help our clients decide if a foundation supports their overall goals, and if it does, we'll help set up the foundation and do much of the management work. Private foundations are a great tool for some of our clients, but they're definitely not the only solution for people who have significant charitable intent. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales.